What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A tremendous Wednesday to each and every one of you. I've completely lost track of time. Um, It's EWTN's Call to Communion. It's our program geared primarily towards our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, If you've got a question, or if you'd like to answer our question, which is what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Might very well be Catholics that are stopping you from becoming a Catholic. (laughs) I've heard that before. (laughs) Anything you want to answer that question, we would love to hear from you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Or you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And it's a rare treat, ladies and gentlemen, for you who are watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live. You're going to get to see Charles Beery as he brings to me the things that I need to actually conduct this radio program, which he neglected to do. And there's Charles for those of you watching on on uh, social media. So it's uh, Charles Beery's screen debut on call to communion with dr david anders um our host yeah that guy dr david anders how are you jack doing great how about you terrific thank you very much uh we now have emails good this is a good thing for the email segment of the program thanks to charles uh that's exactly right so uh adam in mississippi says uh, Dr. Anders, will you please discuss Colossians 1 and compare Christ as the firstborn of all creation versus Christ as the Logos in John chapter 1? Um, yeah, thank you. Well, uh, you know, the the let me pull up the text here of Colossians 1, actually. You, you hit me a little bit unprepared. Um, so That seems so, to be the theme of the program uh, today. Uh, yeah, St. Paul says... <laughs> The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created. Now, right that there, sounds that's, familiar. That, that's pretty strong language there. In <laughs> him all things were created. Things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. So that includes the angels. In created, the beginning yeah, was the Word. Exactly. And the word, the thrones these, powers. Are, these are not unsimilar All passages. things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that that's that's pretty strong language about the preeminence of Christ, not only in the church but cosmically, and uh, so I think you're not wrong to find an analogy to the prologue to the Gospel of John, where instead of using the language of the firstborn, John uses the language of the logos, the Word of God, uh, in whom and by whom are all things. 
Um, you know what we did neglect to mention at the beginning of the program in all the Charles Beery hoopla uh, of, of him appearing on camera here. It's the feast of St. John the 23rd. Oh, is that right? Who is, um, you know, uh, called, uh, of course, convened the first Vatican Council, did not live to see the second Vatican Council, excuse me. Uh, he did not see see the end of it. He passed away That's prior right. to, to that. But he is he is known for being, uh, he was a, a rather corpulent gentleman, and he was known for being uh, rather jolly with uh, quite a good sense of humor, and I can't... So no, that I've ever heard of anybody who has had a bad word to say he, about him. He had some pretty good one-liners. So well, you the know, best one, of course, I think was how many people work in the Vatican? About half. About half. <laughs> uh, one day he was uh, he was strolling in the Vatican gardens, and a woman on the street saw him and said, "Oh my, he's fat!" And he heard her, and he walked over and said, "But my good woman, you must know the conclave is not a beauty contest." <laughs> Yeah, I like he uh, he 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 apparently uh, on a couple of occasions early in his pontificate had awoke, contemplating some deep spiritual matter that he felt needed the Pope's attention, that he needed to notify the Pope of this thing, and then of course during his contemplation realized he's the Pope. He's <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so things things like that are hysterical. But you know he he was a man of deep prayer had a deep spiritual right. prayer life that was known to those that were close to him. And one of the, one of his not-so-famous, from what I hear anyway, uh, quotes that I really like is he said that uh, more can be accomplished by a great... Uh, is it... Uh, now I can't find it. But it's, it's, it's essentially, you know... M- more can be accomplished by a a generous man or a, a merciful man or something along that lines that can be then can be accomplished by an educated man. Uh, well, that's that's that is absolutely true. That's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. So he was he was uh, a man before his time for sure. Um, Brian's watching us on YouTube and he says, "I am in the process of becoming Catholic." And I'm having trouble with the teaching that our actual physical bodies will arise from the dead. Can you please share your understanding of this? Yeah, thanks. So the Catholic, I appreciate the question, by the way. The Catholic position is not simply that your corpse will be revivified. Now, that did happen in the ministry of Jesus. There were people who, were die- who died, and Jesus would come and lay hands on them and say, get up, and they would get up and walk around again. But those same folks would eventually grow old and die again. That, that's not what we're talking about in the Christian doctrine of a resurrection. St. Paul spells it out quite plainly in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where he says that we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye and become like Christ's glorified body. Um, and, uh, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains that between our present body and our future resurrected body, there's continuity but there's also profound difference. And he uses an analogy. He says, you know, if you, if you look at a fish and a cow and a human, they're all flesh, but they have fundamentally different kinds of flesh, that it is a difference in kind between this body and the resurrection body, which will be, he uses the term, a spiritual body. Don't know what that means other than one vivified by the Spirit, but something different than what we have now. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. We would love to hear from you today if you want to answer that question. What is stopping you from becoming Catholic? We would love to hear your answer to that at 833-288-3986. The EWTN Pro-Life Pulse is your weekly recap of the top pro-life headlines moving our nation and the world uh, that the mainstream media has missed or refused to cover. They don't miss it. They, They see it. They refuse to cover it. Visit EWTNnews.com slash pro-life and sign up today to stay connected. The word I was searching for with the John the 23rd quote was peaceful. A peaceful man can accomplish much more than an educated man from John the 23rd. To the phones we go. First up today is Charlene in Lincoln, Nebraska, a first-time caller listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Charlene, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I'm a Catholic, but I have a lot of Muslim and Buddhist friends, and um, everybody prays. So I'm just wondering, um, do their prayers have any merit, any effect at all? And if and if they do, then why should they become Catholic and pray to our God? Yeah, thanks, Charlene. I really appreciate the question. So let me try to give you an analogy that might illuminate a little bit. So I'm sure in your relationships with these folks and other people, you have friends that you're closer to, friends you're more intimate with, friends that you think you know better than others, and others relate to you in the same way, sort of different degrees. And probably you've had somebody in your life before that maybe held some uh, false impressions of you. They had some wrong ideas about who you were and what you valued. And those ideas might not keep you from having any relationship with them, but it would definitely be a, a, a hindrance to your relationship. And uh, I know at one time I used to I used to work in an institution, and I had some colleagues, and and um, and we shared some fundamental misunderstandings of each other's motives. It didn't prevent us from working together, but it it created some tensions. And then the several months into the job, we had an open conversation and realized, oh, you don't actually think that. Oh, you didn't really say that. Oh, and then things got you know it, the the relationship improved. And I think that's a kind of an analogy for the way, as Catholics, we would think about other people's relationships to God outside the Catholic faith. It's not that they have no relationship to God. It's that their relationship to God might be informed by some bad ideas that are going to be a hindrance to it. Let me give you a concrete example. So there are, there are some religious traditions that still teach, and this is a, a topic that's quite relevant in the modern world today, even within the last week, that that um, that is it is in accord with the will of God to engage in unilateral aggressive war, um, wherein you might take uh, prisoners of war that could be sold into sexual slavery, right? That's a that is actually a contemporary practice justified by uh, an appeal to certain claims to divine revelation. That you take some take women in. In, uh, in an aggressive uh, war, and they can be legitimately used for sexual slavery in certain religious traditions. Now, from a Catholic point of view, someone who held that and claimed to do it in the name of God or in, you know, in obedience to God would have a really bad idea of what God wanted for human persons and what c- uh, counted for human flourishing. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody belonging to that tradition is totally alienated from God, but they would be alienated from God in that respect— insofar as they were mistreating their fellow human beings. 
and uh, and and so that's you know there's a there is a real value to try to purify your ideas about God of any kind of superstition or wrong ideas so that we can become we can conform ourselves more and more both in our thinking and our behavior to God's actual character, which is which is both rational and loving. Does that help, Charlene? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. very welcome. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next stop for us is San Antonio, Texas. Chris is in the Republic of Texas listening on Guadalupe Radio today. Chris, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Yes. If we're brought into the body of Christ through baptism, then why do we need confirmation? Um, sure, I appreciate the question. So baptism is the right of entrance into the Catholic faith, and it is for the remission of sins. It, it, it makes you a member of Christ's body, the Church. It also makes you a priest in the Catholic Church so that you can offer the sacrifice of your life in imitation of Christ who gave his life. Uh, and that's what baptism does. Now, um, confirmation does something somewhat different. Confirmation is an empowerment specifically to bear witness to Christ in your public life. And you can see this quite easily in the book of Acts, which is really the the foundation of the doctrine, uh, the textual foundation of the doctrine of the sacrament of confirmation. Um, In Luke and Acts, whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon individuals, uh, he seems to deliver some form of spirit-inspired speech. So when a person is described as receiving the Holy Spirit, they will uh, prophesy, they'll speak in tongues. Sometimes we're just told that they speak the Word of God with boldness. That seems to be the effect of the Spirit's ministry. And then in, empowered in that way, they can go forth and they can spread the kingdom of God and preach the message of Jesus. That's something that's, that's fundamentally different from what St. Peter says about baptism in Acts chapter 2, when the People say to Peter, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. So, uh, different sacrament, uh, grace extended in a different mode. Every sacrament gives sanctifying grace, but the sacraments give them in a different mode. The mode of baptismal sanctifying grace is that mode that conforms us to the likeness and image of Christ and makes us priests in the Church like he is. Uh, confirmation is that empowerment for public witness and ministry. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Joseph, another first-time caller in Anchorage, Alaska, listening at uh, Holy Rosary Academy today. Joseph, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, My question today was, uh, I know that in uh, the... Angels or the choirs of angels are traditionally um, talked about as um, powers, thrones, dominions, uh, principalities, and I know that comes from Scripture where St. Paul is talking about those. My question was, uh, when I read that, my first thought when I when I first read that was when he's talking about thrones and dominions, he's talking about earthly powers and countries and governments and that kind of thing. So I guess my question is, do we um, do you know why? Um, the church um, interprets those as being angelic. Sure, and, and let me let me say something here about the way Catholic doctrine functions in relationship to biblical exegesis. So there's nothing objectionable for a Catholic to say, you know, that here is this verse of Scripture, and this commentator interpreted it this way, 
But here, I think it's a better way to interpret it. Uh, you can do that as a Catholic. You're allowed to do that. I mean, there's no there's no one normative, definitive way to interpret a particular passage of Scripture, and that's why we have disciplines like a modern biblical study. And Catholics have put up an awful lot of really sound biblical scholars, and some of them take issues with traditional uh, uh, interpretations of text. That's fine. Catholic doctrine doesn't stand or fall on the exegesis of any one text. Uh, and in fact, Catholic doctrine is primarily the fruit of Catholic tradition, which includes the Bible, and 2,000 years of reflection. So with that background, there's a clear Catholic doctrine on the reality of angels and their hierarchic organization. And so if you read St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, he'll, he'll go into some lengths about the various grades of angels and how they relate hierarchically to one another. We have the existence of the guardian angels and the archangels and the seraphim and the cherubim, cherubim, all that. That's part of the doctrine. You don't necessarily have to coordinate it with with one particular text in St. Paul. Now, why would some interpreter do that? Well, obviously, there is a theological tradition of understanding the hierarchies, and some interpreters who who want to do their exegesis with a keen awareness of Catholic theological tradition, are going to look to coordinate that tradition to the text. That's just kind of a natural way of doing it. But, it, you know, it, it doesn't constrain you such that, you know, if you read a commentator who has a different view, that, that's also allowable. You must be very approachable today. We've got another first-time caller up next. That's Sarah. She's in Tyrone, Pennsylvania, listening Fantastic. on JMJ Radio. Sarah, you're on with Dr. Anders. Yes, hello. I was wondering, when do we defend the faith, or how do we defend the faith, when it's not a direct question to us? It's not a direct challenge. So this is my scenario. At my workplace, uh, we have a girl. She actually wants to go as a day, but I don't participate in that. And every, everyone at work knows that I'm a Catholic. I, I you know, mentioned that just in conversation. Uh, I don't, you know, hide that. But she was saying, uh, making comments that all Christians are hateful, and her and another person were saying that that transgender surgeries are positive. And these aren't comments that are meant to be malicious or meant to call me out. They're just having these conversations. And in those moments, I'm trying to think of ways that I could respond even ways, you know, uh, with a little humor or sarcasm. But it, they just don't, nothing that I think of would be appropriate. And I, I don't say anything or I try to change the topic if that's appropriate. Uh, but usually I'm not even in these conversations. So how am I supposed to address these comments? Because yeah, I really thanks. I, I really appreciate the question. So I, I don't know that you're under a particular obligation to disabuse everyone's bad ideas about the Catholic faith every time they open their mouth, obviously. And it, you, you can just keep your peace and demonstrate by your behavior the falsity of this allegation. So, you know, if I wanted to demonstrate to someone that Catholics were not all hateful but were in fact loving, I think the most appropriate way to do that would be to act lovingly towards them. You know, about buying them a muffin from the from the food court at work, you know, and wishing them a happy day or something. You know, I mean, that's uh, uh, that, that's the most effective way. And being there for them in times of trouble and being a listening ear and practicing empathy, that, that's really the best way to demonstrate that all Christians are not hateful. Um, now, if someone engages you in conversation and they, they're open to a, to a genuine good faith dialogue, 
uh, then you can have a conversation. And, you know, without trying to be threatening and not using a lot of you pronouns, but speaking, you know, first person and in an abstract sort of way, you can say, well, you know, if, if, uh, if you say that every Christian is hateful, have you met every Christian? <laughs> you know, that seems like a kind of a bigoted, prejudicial thing to say. You know, if I made that kind of claim about some other identity grouping, well, all X are Y, I'd probably be accused of prejudice. Um, you know, what do you think about that? But in terms of how you disabuse them, I think the best way is by your behavior. And if they haven't invited you into the conversation, then inserting yourself might be a kind of performative contradiction. You know, if you if you say, hey, Christians are actually very loving, but you, you jump in in a way that seems offensive, that might be a problem. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, we've got a, uh, a viewer on YouTube from Vancouver, Washington, who wants to know if Catholics can celebrate Halloween, and if yes, why, and if no, why not? Uh, so can we celebrate the eve of, of, uh, of All Saints Day, All Hallows' Eve, which is the origin of Halloween? I would think that we can. Uh, the question is, how do you wish to celebrate it? And, of course, you can celebrate it in ways that are more or less edifying, uh, but that'd be the prudential choice that you need to make. You know, I'm, uh, and I, I don't want to do something in my Halloween celebrations that would encourage people in immoral or superstitious uh, behavior, uh, but simply to celebrate the feast day is not inappropriate. 833-288-EWTN, that is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call. Anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Janice is in the Commonwealth of Virginia listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Janice, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hello. My question is, did Judas have the uh, share the Eucharist with Jesus before he went out to betray him? My study group has been doing a a book on the Eucharist, and that question came up. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is a disputed question among biblical scholars and theologians, because the text is not is not clear on the matter. So there are those who hold that Judas did receive Holy Communion, there are those that hold that he did not, and there is no definitive answer to the question. Sorry we couldn't have more info than that, but that's all the info that's out there, unfortunately, on that particular topic. Thanks, Janice. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Brady, Carlos, Dory, and hopefully we will talk with you as well. Grab one of these open phone lines on a Wednesday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Those numbers again, 833 288 EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we still want to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line if you give us a call at 1-205-271-2985. Five. If you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question or a comment into the chat window, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, uh, will get that up to us 
uh, sometime during the program today if he sees fit. He fields a lot of questions, and a couple of them will make their way to us every day. And you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd love to hear your answer to that question today at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Alongside Dr. David Andrews, I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price. Caroline is watching us on YouTube, and she says, Dr. Andrews, I'm told that baptisms are not allowed during the Lenten season. I am a practicing Catholic, and I have a feeling this is not true. My fifth great-grandchild is due in February. Uh, It is not true. You can baptize a baby during Lent. There you go, Caroline. I hope that puts your mind at rest. Back to the phones we go. Next up is Brady in the great state of Minnesota, another first-time caller listening on Real Presence Radio. Brady, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Dr. Anders, it is a tremendous honor to actually ask you a question. Um, God has given you an incredible amount of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and that you're giving us this knowledge, wisdom, and understanding in a charitable manner is just above and beyond. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So I'm Catholic, and I've recently begun speaking with an Assemblies of God pastor because I want to grow in respect and understanding of their position. Um, How can I help drive home the importance of belonging to the church that Jesus started and not just placing stock in this invisible church of worldwide believers. Um, How can I drive that point home? And then uh, what might be a good question to ask him that I might not otherwise think to ask him? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the the one question that I think that every Protestant, and that would include Pentecostal Protestants, uh, really need to wrestle with is this. Did Jesus Christ make provision for the authoritative transmission of the Christian faith? And if he did, when and where and what is that provision? And the reason I state the question that way is that almost all Protestants, including Assembly of God ministers, presume that the provision that God made for handing handing on the faith authoritatively was, of course, the canon of the Bible. And they've never actually examined the premise of that question, I think, at least I hadn't when I was a Protestant, and most Protestants I know haven't. Um, Because when you actually get down to, well, what did Jesus actually reveal on this? What you find is that there's no record that God or or any prophet or Jesus himself ever indicated that the way to hand on the faith authoritatively was by reference to the Bible. And in fact, it would be an historical impossibility because at the time of Christ's ascension, the Bible that we have today did not exist. It wasn't I mean, the Gospels weren't written until, you know, 40, 50 years after the ascension of Christ, and the canon of the New Testament wasn't compiled authoritatively until the 4th century. So the idea that this was, that, that God revealed that this is how you're to do it is, a, I mean, it's a, it's a non-starter. And, uh, and so if he didn't tell us that the Bible is the rule of faith, uh, what did he offer any suggestions? And in fact, we find emphatically that he did. Jesus said to the apostles, go into all nations and make disciples, teach them everything that I have commanded you, 
baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And whoever hears you hears me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Let's take a look at that. So Christ said, first of all, that what the disciples are to hand on is everything he'd commanded them. Now, Christ's commands came by way of his own oral tradition and his own behavior and example. Nothing written down by Jesus, so he's not referencing some text that he's giving them, but the deposit of faith that he transmitted when he was alive. That's what we call sacred tradition. And before the Gospels were ever written, the epistles of Paul referenced that tradition, not a text, but a tradition about Christ, as an authoritative touchstone for Christian faith. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the tradition that I receive from the Lord I hand on to you. And the, the pastoral epistles make it plain that that's the body of faith that's to be handed on through apostolic succession. Secondly, Christ gives this commission to authorized individuals, to the eleven, and promises his divine assistance until the end of the age. I will be with you till the end of the age. So it's not a one-time thing. It, it goes on. And, uh, and furthermore, says really amazing thing about these authorized individuals, that they speak for God in an incredibly authoritative way. Whoever hears you hears me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. So that's beginning to sound a lot like the Catholic magisterium, a, a body of authorized individuals established by Christ with the promise of divine assistance till the end of the age with the charge of handing on an oral tradition. That's, that's the Catholic rule of faith. Now, your Pentecostal friend is going to reject that out of hand, but you have to ask him, well, how then do you arrive at the Bible as your rule of faith, right? And he might advert to his own religious experience. Pentecostals often do. They'll say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit told me this, the Holy Spirit told me that. And well, what exactly did he tell you, right? He told you that these books were divinely inspired and authoritative, maybe. All right, but that doesn't solve your problem, right? It's one thing, it's one thing to claim that the, Catholic, that the Bible is inspired. All Catholics believe that. We believe the Bible's inspired. We think it's the Word of God. But that's not what you need to establish if you're a Protestant. It's not enough to point to the Bible being inspired. You have to show that it was intended to serve the function that Protestants believe it functions. So a Catholic thinks it's divinely inspired, but doesn't think it's the rule of faith. It doesn't think it's the be-all and end-all of Christian life. So you need an additional argument beyond some intuition that it's inspired. But now let's talk about that intuition. Is that reliable? Really? Your ultimate criteria is going to be your own subjective religious experience? There are just all kinds of problems with the Protestant view when you subject it to critical examination. One that I shared with a friend of mine many years ago, a friend who's now Catholic. So I said, you're a Protestant. He said, that's right. So let me ask you a question. He says, what's that? I said, you believe the Bible is your rule of faith. He says, that's right. I said, how do you know the difference between a dogma and an opinion? He says, what are you talking about? I said, you know, a dogma is what all Christians have to believe, like the Trinity or the Incarnation. An opinion is something that Christians could disagree on without really rupturing their fellowship. And your question about denominationalism is very much on point, because the thesis of denominationalism is that there's some core set of doctrines that everybody can believe on, and the things we disagree on, you know, allow us to exist in different denominations, but they're not really determinative for Christian identity. So the question is, if you're a Protestant, how do you know what that core set of doctrines is? What is the essential content that you have to agree on that we call a dogma? What's the principle that you use to determine one for the other? And there is no principled answer to that question if you're a Protestant. There's no way to distinguish dogma from opinion. Dogma is, you know, whatever I say it is, or whatever the last most persuasive preacher I heard said it is. And, uh, and this is particularly a problem in the Pentecostal world. I mean, I used to run around with Pentecostals in the old days, and, and they put so much stock on the charismatic authority of individual leaders 
that uh, that they tend to be led into a whole variety of uh, sometimes rather outlandish beliefs based on what some alleged prophet has recently declared. And uh, because they lack a clear distinction between dogma and opinion, if they find someone persuasive, they feel morally obligated to follow that individual's opinion. So there's no solid ground under their feet at the end of the day. But for the Catholics, see, there is a principled way of distinguishing dogma from an opinion. Dogma is what the Church has declared to be dogma, and the Church possesses that authority by the, by the granting of Christ. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Carlos in Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Carlos, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Hello, guys. Thank you for uh, taking my call. And ditto on what the other gentleman said about Dr. Andrews. Totally agree. So uh, with your permission, and hopefully the screener won't get mad at me, I have two quick questions. So the first one is, what is the magisterium's current position on children, born children, that by parents' design are not baptized. And then my second question is, I had a conversation with our parish priest on Sunday after Mass, who happens to be a canon lawyer. And um, during his homily, he referred to uh, how we see sin accepting others as they are, as Jesus would. And when I go back to the Bible, um, and I'm not referring to Sola Scriptura, but uh, also with our tradition and our history as an apostolic church, um, specific commandments in how we should behave, can sin be blessed? Can sin be redefined? That's or, those are my questions, and thank you. Yeah, thanks. So the first question about children who are not baptized, are we? is this a question about the death of unbaptized children or the status of children who are, you know, they're a going concern, as it were. Their death is not on the horizon, and yet their parents have chosen not to baptize them. Which of those two are you interested in? Thank you. The parents have chosen, for whatever reason, not to baptize them. Yeah, okay, so the uh, yeah. Piathic position on that is the children cannot be baptized if the, ch- if the parents will for them to not be baptized, unless the two occasions when they can be baptized. One would be if danger of death, so if there's an imminent danger of death, that child could be baptized even without the parent's consent. The other condition would be if there's some other person, like maybe a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, who is willing to take on the religious education of the child and ensure that they could meet their canonical obligations as a Catholic, then the Church could baptize the child. But they wouldn't do it over the parents' wishes without, you know, so so you sometimes I'll get calls from grandparents that are secretly baptizing babies in the bathtub, and that that's a, that's a no-no. You're not allowed to do that. If the parents don't want for it to happen, you, you're not you're not supposed to do it. And the reason why is that baptism is not a it's not a magic trick that guarantees entrance into heaven. Baptism is the right of entrance into the Christian life, and so it presumes taking on the Christian form of life and living in Christian community. If there's no guarantee or there's no sort of well-founded assurance that that's going to happen, baptism alone is not going to get you to heaven. You you have to continue in the Christian way of life, and so. You know, St. Peter tells us, better not to have entered the way of righteousness than to enter it and fall away. So if you baptize somebody without any intention that they're going to follow up, you're really not doing them any favors. Better to bring them along until they're ready for baptism. In terms of the, you know, the canon lawyer saying that we need to see people and accept them as they actually are, 
Well, at one level, of course, that's absolutely true, that we have to accept people where they are. And one of the things that stands out about Jesus' ministry is that he refused to draw these uh, hard and fast uh, cultural categories and only associate with one kind of person. And he spent his time with Samaritans and Gentiles and uh, sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. Uh, but, of course, his aim in doing so was to bring them to, uh, to holiness of life. And he made the statement explicitly that many of those would make it into the kingdom of heaven ahead of the scribes and Pharisees, not because they were prostitutes or tax collectors, uh, but because they had heard his message and repented, whereas the Pharisees and tax collect- the Pharisees and Sadducees thought they were in no need of repentance. So uh, can we change the definition of sin? Well, we can't make something that is intrinsically immoral suddenly become moral. All right, that, that, that's impossible. It can happen, however, that the church can grow in its understanding of what constitutes human flourishing, um, such that uh, uh, something might now seem to be a sin that we formally tolerated. It doesn't work so much the other way around. Um, so, you know, let me give you an example. Uh, today, I think the church and, and society in general has a much better idea about the deleterious effects of alcohol. Right. It's, it it's can be really bad stuff and lead to all kinds of aggression, spousal abuse, and, you know, you name it, all kinds of bad things that happen. And, uh, and while the church does not say that alcohol is intrinsically immoral, it's not, it's not intrinsically immoral, um, I think the church would say today, well, you know, it wouldn't be good pastoral advice to tell somebody who is depressed, you know, to go down to the local pub and drown his sorrows. That would be bad pastoral advice. But there actually was a period in, in Catholic Church history where pastors were more tolerant of that kind of thing. They would say, well, you know, go have a drink and, and chill out, uh, because they had less appreciation medically for the dangers of alcohol. So that would be an advance in the Church's sort of moral thinking on an issue because of advances in our knowledge about what constitutes human flourishing. Another one would, would be, say... Um, uh, this how just how bad it is to keep slaves, right? So the church has always had a dim view of slavery, and you can find Thomas Aquinas opining on this issue long before the age of discovery, saying you know slavery is a really bad idea, um, and uh, probably not 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 a good thing. Without advancing to to the realization that there need to be a kind of policy statement that it's categorically ruled out of all civilizations, so. You know, from an initial intuition of the dignity of the human person, it could take some centuries to eventually realize that slavery as such must always everywhere be wrong. So you can find moral developments in the church's thinking like that without ever saying that, like, you know, slavery is good, now it's bad. That's not the kind of change we're talking about. Um, Join us every single day, Monday through Friday, at 4 a.m. Eastern Time for Fathers Know Best. Tomorrow's program, a good one, Father... Father John Ricardo reflects on loving the hater to his face. How we can drown animosity to our neighbor with the love of the Holy Spirit. That's Father's No Best, 4 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Dory in Pennsylvania, watching us today on YouTube. Dory, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Um, my question is, is the pan, uh, Pangea theory aligned with the Catholic Church and the Book of Genesis, or even um, Noah and the Ark? 
Yeah, thanks. Okay, I appreciate the question. So for those of listeners who are not up to date on Pangaea, this is the, the hypothesized um, sort of original continent when you had North and South America and the continent of Africa all smushed into one landmass. And, of course, I am not a geologist, nor the son of one, and I don't claim to speak with any kind of scientific authority, but my understanding is this, this is the general opinion of most historical geologists, and they think there's a fair amount of evidence for that in the, uh, in, the, um, in, the in the fossil record, the plate tectonics, and all the rest of it. The Catholic position on anything like this is that, if, is that faith and reason can never conflict. So if I, if I come to realize that something is in fact true, and I can discern that through empirical investigation, then, it, then it's true. Right? If I find out that it's true, it's true, you know? And if yeah, you're, I, you're, getting, you're getting deep now. Yeah. <laughs> if I have interpreted the Catholic faith in a way that would prejudice me against that truth, and empirical investigation disabuses me, the proper response is not to reject... Uh, the conclusions of science or empirical investigation, it is to go back and reinterpret, reevaluate the way I've understood the faith. I'll give you an example of how that worked out historically. So when Galileo was promoting the Copernican view that, uh, that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around, Cardinal Bellarmine, who was the church's chief doctrinal authority at the time, said, and, and not just based on scripture. And a scripture, crazy smart guy. And a crazy smart guy, but also based on science, based on science at the time, said, Galileo, I, I think you're wrong. However, if you can prove your theory to me, you can give me empirical evidence that is true, then I will go back and reinterpret the data accordingly, and I'll revise my understanding of Genesis and all the rest of it. And, of course, that is eventually what happened. Galileo's theory wasn't actually proved true in his lifetime, but it was later. And, uh, and then the church said, oh, yeah, okay, that's the way it is. And so that, that's how we respond to any kind of, uh, any kind of uh, scientific data. Now, personally, I'm, I'm rather excited by the Pangaea hypothesis, particularly once it splits apart and you get, um, you get Appalachia, which is the, the eastern part of the United States that was once a big island. The reason why I'm into that is I discovered quite recently that there is a dinosaur named after my state capital. It's the Appalachiosaurus montgomeriensis, right? And uh, I just think it's so cool that, that we had like these little mini tyrannosaurs like marching around in my backyard some millions of years ago and I'm hope, looking for the day when I can dig up one of their skeletons. Yeah, I got an armadillo tearing up my yard right now, so the past is not so far away from me. Okay. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Amy is a first-time listener driving through our great state of Alabama, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Amy, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, Amy. Amy in Alabama, are you there? We'll come back to Amy. Let's try Daniel in Colorado. Wait. He is, uh, well, I lost it. There it is. He's uh, watching us on YouTube today. Daniel, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders. I heard you are somewhat of a Calvinist expert, so I was wondering um, what's the difference between the Calvinist predestination and the Catholic view of predestination? Yeah, are you thanks. An expert? Uh, or well, are you just you know, a recovering Calvinist. I, well, at one time I was an expert. I did my doctoral dissertation <laughs> on Calvin, but it's been 20 years, you know. Um, so the Calvinist view is that before the foundation of the world, an eternity past, that God specifically marks out a portion of the human race and, de and predestines them to glory, 
and that he specifically intends the damnation of the mass of humanity, right? And so that's the vast majority of humans. God positively desires and decrees that they will spend eternity in hell and determines to withhold from them the necessary grace that would otherwise make it possible for them to be saved. And he does this for his own inscrutable purposes, but not the least of them would be to demonstrate his glory and his justice. Right, so that's the that's the Calvinist view, and that most people that strikes as absolutely absurd and tyrannical. You know, that God would positively intend my damnation from all eternity, uh, and that I am that I cannot possibly resist His will, uh, just to sort of flex His muscles as it were, and show everybody that He's righteous and just. That seems that seems like a just grotesquely unfair and inequitable proposition. Um, the progenitors of the theory, Luther and Calvin, Luther also believed this, by the way recognized that it was on the face uh, absurd. And Luther addressed the absurdity in his 1525 book, The Bondage of the Will. And he said, look, this strikes some people as absolutely absurd. What that shows you, Luther contended, was that human reason is, uh, is unreliable and that if it's divine, it has to appear to us as irrational. And so Luther embraced a kind of radical... Um, well, irrationality uh, in, uh, in his understanding of the Christian faith. That's very different from the Catholic point of view. So predestination, of course, is a biblical term and a biblical concept, pro-wortso in Greek. It means to mark out in advance. And, uh, and the doctrine as it was developed in Catholic history owes a lot to the reflection of St. Augustine of Hippo. So I'm going to give you a couple of perspectives on it, because there are varieties within the Catholic position. Here's what you have to hold as a Catholic. You have to hold as a Catholic that uh, that you cannot uh, you cannot will your way to heaven without the assistance of divine grace. All right, um, you cannot merit grace. And so some people even today wrongly believe that if you turn to God and ask for grace, then God grants you grace and then you can be saved. Right. And so the turning is you, but the grace is God. That that's actually false. That view is called semi-Pelagianism. It was condemned at the Synod of Orange in the sixth century. The reason it was rejected is because St. Augustine realized the Church teaches that even the turn to God for ask, to ask for grace is itself the effect of grace. That, that God is at work in you f- from the very beginning to enlighten your mind, to desire the life of holiness, to desire reconciliation with God. All that is grace from beginning to end, and it's God's, it's God's initiative. You can't, you can't manufacture it. You can, however merit an increase in grace once you're already in the state of grace. So you can cooperate freely with God's grace and, uh, and, and merit more, and there is, your agency is involved there. Now, the Church teaches furthermore that it's not only that initial grace that you need, but you need to continue in the state of grace. You have to persevere to the end, and that perseverance cannot be earned. So let's say you've lived a really exemplary life for 20 years, you can't presume that the next 20 years are going to be a cakewalk and you're definitely going to get into heaven. You have to persevere all the way to the end. And if you do, you can't look back over your life and say, what a great guy I am, I persevered. You know, William's over here, he apostatized, but I persevered, I'm a fantastic guy, look at me. Church says, no, no, no. If you persevere, perseverance is also a gift of grace that cannot be earned under any circumstances. You can pray for it. You can ask God for the grace of perseverance, and that's what we do in the Hail Mary. We say, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. That's implicitly a prayer for perseverance, but you can't earn it, okay? But here's where it gets a little bit tricky. 
Church also teaches that God grants sufficient grace to everyone that they might be saved. So rather than positively desiring the death of many and their damnation, God desires that all be saved, and he offers sufficient grace to all that they might be saved. So the question is, what makes the difference between someone who cooperates with that grace and someone who doesn't? Is that creditable to us? Church says no. So that leaves us with a mystery. How do you account for the cooperation of the soul freely with grace such that one person is saved and as another is lost? If God desires all to be saved and gives grace to all, and yet we can't merit perseverance or that initial grace. There are two answers to that in Catholic tradition. There's the Dominican answer and the, and the Jesuit answer. The Dominican answer is not the Calvinist answer, but it's closer to Calvin. It just says, for God, for his inscrutable purposes, gives the, the efficacious grace to some for reasons known only to him. The, the Molinist answer, based on the theologian Molina, said that God grants that grace to those who, by his foreknowledge of counterfactuals, the would-have-beens and the what-mights of the world, sees how people will make use of that grace freely given, and so that God's providence takes into account his foreknowledge of human free action. That's a very speculative theory, but both of them are allowed in Catholic tradition. I, I typically, typically take a totally different view on predestination, which is to begin with the predestination in Scripture, preeminently that of Abraham and of Christ, that God calls Abraham. He does predestine him. He calls him out of the world, but for what reason? Is it just for his own salvation alone, or is it so that he can be a blessing to all nations? Preeminently that of Christ. Christ he predestines Christ, not for sal- Christ's own salvation alone, but so that he can be a blessing to the world. And in that sense, I think that's the way we should all think about our predestination if we're called to believe in Christ, not so that I can achieve salvation on my own, but so that I can be a member of the body of Christ and bring salt and light to the rest of the world. John, John in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, wants to know if you can put a rosary in with the cremains before the urn is interred. You know, I, I've, I've never heard the question asked. I'm not aware of any canon that would, that would forbid it. Um, but again, I'm, I, it's a little bit, I've never heard the question, so I'm just speculating here. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow, same time, right here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.